Uh, if you will, please go ahead and turn with me to Romans chapter 1. That's where we're going to be today. Uh, if you've been with us the past few weeks, then you know that we started a brand new series on Paul's letter to the church in Rome. Romans is what it is. And uh, it's a series I'm personally really, really pumped about, not only because this is the book that God used to radically transform my own life back when I was a sophomore in high school, but I know that this is a prayer that many of us have been praying, that God would do this radical work, that he would do a transformative um, uh, revivalistic work, not only nationally, but in us personally too. And what I know about the Paul's letter to the Romans, I was like, this is one of these biblical books that has a long history of doing exactly that. Uh, one of my heroes of the faith, Charles Spurgeon, says this about Romans, but he says, Romans is the most beautiful theological book that we have. The whole letter expounds upon the gospel of Jesus Christ, and if people would simply read it and meditate upon its truth, undoubtedly their lives would begin to change. And again, like that is my hope and my prayer for us as we spend the next 25, 30 weeks going through the book of Romans, uh, that we would dive in deep, that we would develop deep, strong roots uh, founded in God's word, and that he would come and that he would bring us the breakthrough and the revival that we so desperately need. So again, uh, with that, please turn with me. Romans chapter 1, we're going to hang out in verses 13 to 15. Again, one more week before we get to the crescendo, the main uh, point of Paul's letter to the Romans here, uh, but we're going to hang out here in the introduction one more week. Now, if you're not familiar with the book at all, I, I, I keep calling it a book. It is a letter, right? This is written from the Apostle Paul, who wrote the majority of the New Testament uh, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but it's a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Rome somewhere around 57 AD, and it's largely written in response to some of the difficulties that they were having as a church body figuring out, okay, how do we do unity well? Now we're a gathering of believers, Jewish and Gentile, we're here in the first century. We're kind of, we don't have much of a playbook to pull from or anything. So how do we do unity well when there's so many different things that can divide? Uh, we, we know a little bit more specifically what's, what, what's actually taking place in this church from Acts chapter 18. But we know that at that time, the Roman emperor, his name was Claudius, he actually kicked out all the, the Jews from Rome for what he was calling Jewish disturbances at that time. And so there was this massive um, exodus of Jews from Rome. And it lasted for about five years. At that point in time, Claudius passed away. His successor was a 17-year-old kid who's ruling Rome at that time. So a 17-year-old is in charge. Uh, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. Rather, Anyway, we'll, we'll say that once for another day. But that's what's happening. And his successor comes in. And when he comes in, he allows the Jews to return to Rome again. And so imagine this in a church. You're a brand new church. Um, at the early stages, the Jewish believers were probably the ones who were in charge. They're the ones who have knowledge of the Old Testament, the customs, the traditions. Um, and so they were largely the ones who were in charge. Now all of a sudden they've been gone for five years and they return. And now it's the Gentiles that are largely in charge of the church. These people who do not have uh, an affection for the Old Testament law like you do. Uh, they don't know the traditions like you do. They don't value the same things uh, as you do. And now all of a sudden these are the people who are in char charge of the church. And so can you just imagine that with me for a second? Like how would you go about maintaining unity and peace and love in a gathering like that? I mean, imagine a church. You, you, didn't have, you didn't have options for churches to go to at every street corner. You didn't have denominations made. You didn't have online church that you could resort to and you can, uh, you know, tap into your favorite pastor or whatever it may be. You didn't have any of these options. Like, like, where do you go when it gets really, really hard and you don't like some of the things that are taking place in your church body? 
Church, like, where do you go when someone in your life group, you figure out, hey, they vote very differently than you do, and they have very different values than you do? Where do you go when things may get heated in a church body? Like, where do you go when the style of music isn't really something that you like? It's not really your personal taste or anything like that, yet that's the only option that you have. Like, where do you go when there's racial tension in the room, and some people want to talk about it a whole lot, and you really don't want to talk about it at all? Uh, church, like, how is the gospel the solution to everything at work that is trying to drive us apart? Because that is Paul's response. His whole response to the dilemma that they're in is to go into this deep, deep exposition of what the gospel of Jesus Christ is and everything that he's done on our behalf. And so that's what, I, that's what our passage is going to help us with again uh, today. Again, we're going to pick it up here in verse 1. Uh, I'm going to catch us up a little bit here in the introduction, and then all I want to do is I want to focus on one word from verse 14 here that is going to help us get to where we need to go. So here's how he begins starting in verse 1. He says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, a doulos, a, a bondservant or a slave of God. I'm obligated to God. I'm obligated to the Lord Jesus Christ. Called to be an apostle, meaning one who's been sent out by God on purpose and one who's been set apart for the gospel of God, meaning the good news of God the Father. Why? Verse 5, to bring about the obedience of the faith, which is the mission, why? For the sake of his name among the nations. And that's the vision. It's a big picture. That's what Paul wants to do with this letter. He wants to bring about the obedience of faith, which is the mission. We talk about it as we want to love all, help all, follow Jesus, right? The obedience of the faith is what it means to follow Jesus. Following Jesus and obedience go hand in hand. That is the mission, what he's called us to do. Why? For the sake of his name, for the fame of his name all around the world. It's not just that I'm going to enjoy him and that you're going to enjoy him. It's that his name is going to be praised all around the world. And so big picture sure that's what he sets out to do in this letter. He continues in verse 11 with another goal when he says, I long to see you so that I can impart to you a spiritual gift in order to strengthen you, right? That we can be mutually encouraged by one another's faith. And so another subset right here is that it's not just obedience, but, but he wants us to be obedient and bring about the obedience of the faith in such a way that we're going to be strengthened, that, that we won't be infants tossed back and forth by, by, the, by the worries and anxieties of the world, but we would actually be strong in the faith and that we would find that faith in this life-giving community. It's what we talked about last week right there too. And so that's our prayer, our hope and prayer is that we bring about the obedience of the faith, that we would be strong and able to endure the trials and tribulations of 2020, right? And we would do it in such a way that leads to the fame of his name. And so that's where we're going to pick it up here in verse 13. He's going to continue along the same lines, and he's going to say this, I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that I've often intended to come to you, but thus far I've been prevented in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among some of the Gentiles. Again, it's this kind of mission and vision-oriented language. It's not just about the Jews. It's also about the Gentiles right here. Verse 14, I am under obligation both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, to the wise and to the foolish. And so I'm eager to come and preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And so I want to stop right there uh, one more time. We're going to get into the good stuff in 16 and 17. Uh, I take that back. It's not the only good stuff right there, but we're going to get into that next week. But again, if you're a note taker, here's what I want you to do. I want you to circle this word obligation right here that's found in verse 14. Circle it, highlight it, whatever you do in your book right there. Uh, but that's what Paul's saying. He says, in light of the mission and vision, he goes, I feel obligated to you. I feel obligated not only to the Jews, my own people, but I feel obligated to the Greeks. 
Uh, I feel obligated to the wise and to the foolish, which is another way of talking about the Greeks and the non-Greeks because that's what Greeks were known for. They were known for their wisdom and their great philosophy, their great oration skills and things of that nature. And then everyone else compared to them, they just called them foolish. And of course, Paul's writing this letter to the church in Rome from from Greece. And so (laughs) that's why he's using some of that language right there. But what he's saying here is like, I feel obligated to you all. Not just my own people, but I feel obligated to them as well. In other words, like it's not just a matter of preference. My ministry, my coming to you, my writing to you this letter, it's not just a matter of preference for me. I literally feel indebted in such a way to all different kinds of people, Greeks and non-Greeks, Jews and Gentiles, white, black, brown, yellow, red, rich, poor, wise and foolish, Democrats and Republicans, and everything on the spectrum. And so it's a really, really weird thing that he says right here because there's very few of us today that are going to say, you know what, I feel an obligation to you. Someone who sits on the other side of the table from where I happen to be sitting today. Like, we don't feel indebted to other people in our lives. I don't feel typically a sense of obligation to other people in the church and other people outside of this church. Tim Keller uh, explains this uh, obligation sense, this sense of obligation uh, like this. But he says there's two different ways that you can can think about this sense of indebtedness or obligation uh, to someone else. Uh, He says one is like an individual who's obligated or indebted to a lender. And so he says, imagine if a bank loaned you a million dollars, you would then be obligated or indebted to that lender, that bank, for as long as it takes to pay back that loan. And so that's one way to think about it. It's kind of a, uh, a lender versus someone who's received money and you're obligated in that way. It's probably not what's in mind right here because, again, Paul's never met these people yet. He's heard their reputation. He knows of them, but they don't have this personal relationship. And so there's no reason to think that he is personally indebted in some sort of way. The other way that you can think about it is a little bit broader in scope, but imagine that if the bank were to give you a million dollars and say, okay, this million dollars is, is partially yours. You're going to get a sum of it, but it's also for 10 other families, and I want you to go and to deliver this money to them. If that were the case, then you would feel an obligation not only to the giver, but you'd be obligated to these 10 other families until you took that money and delivered it over to them as well, until you pass on what was never really yours to keep. And church, like that's what's in mind right here. Like that's what Paul's saying right here. This, the love of the gospel, what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Church, it was never ours to keep. Like this is never our, it was never just about me and him. It wasn't only me that he was thinking about on the cross that day. There was a bigger, there's a bigger picture in mind. We have an obligation to the people around us. And Jesus says this in, in Acts chapter one, verse eight, before he um, ascends to the heavenlies, he, he's speaking to his disciples and he says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Church, you don't need power unless you've got a purpose associated for that power. But he says, you're gonna receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Why? So that you can be my witnesses and you can pass on the faith in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and all the way to the ends of the earth. In other words, church, like it was never just about the Jews. Like it was never just about them. It's why he says in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. In other words, again, like it began with the Jews since the original covenant God made was with the Jews in the Old Testament. Jesus himself was a Jew. It began with them, came first to them. But the plan, again, was always, uh, it was always to include everyone else. It's what he talks about in Ephesians chapter 2 when he clarifies what was, what was actually taking place at the cross. But he says, again, before Jesus Christ came, like we were actually enemies of God. We were hostile in mind and we were engaged in evil deeds. But he says, now that you and I are in Jesus Christ, here's what took place. You who are once far away, you've been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. There was distance before, but now there's nearness. 
For he himself is our peace who made two groups into one, and he's destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in the flesh the law with its commands and its regulations. His purpose, therefore, was to create in himself one brand new humanity here out of the two, thus establishing peace. And in one body, meaning Jesus Christ, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. But church, here it is. Like that's what God's done for us in the cross of Jesus Christ. He's made two warring families into one brand new family. Church, like he's made two groups into one. Like Jews and Gentiles, friends and enemies, men and women, rich and poor, Republicans and Democrats. And he did it all by God's grace through faith in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, thus establishing peace not only with the Father vertically, but peace horizontally with one another. And so, yeah, Paul's looking at, at the, the entirety of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what he's about to get into in the rest of Romans, and he's feeling a sense of obligation. I mean, how in the world can we be the recipient of that kind of love from the Father and not feel an obligation to pass it on? I mean, how in the world can, can we know God's heart for the lost how in the world can we know his love for a broken world around us and not choose to go and to pass on that love? Church, like that's what the gospel does. It obligates us to love the other. And when I say the other church, like it, no matter who the other is, whoever is sitting across the table from you, from where you happen to stand right there, it's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter five. You've heard it said that you should love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I'm telling you, you need to love your enemies too. You need to pray for those who persecute you. In other words, what he's saying is like this love that I'm talking about, this love that I'm commanding you to come into, this obligated love that you may feel, like it's not just for the easy people in your life. It's not just for the people that, that look like you and talk like you. It's for the people that gossip about you. It's for the people that slander you. It's for the people that you don't understand their ways. You don't understand their culture. You don't understand the different things that are going on. It's for the people that you fight with all the time. The people who make your life miserable, and quite honestly, they may not even be deserving of your love. But church, like, that's who he's talking about right here. And so, and so here's what I'm wondering today, church. Like, what would it look like if we could feel that sense of obligation to love one another today? Like, what would it actually look like if you looked around the room and you looked across that table from wherever you happen to be sitting today and you were actually able to love the other today as Jesus commands us to do and as Paul's going to talk about here in just a moment. I mean, a, a couple years back, Ed Stetzer wrote a book called Christians in the Age of Outrage. And um, <laughs> it's very fascinating, very relevant, but he's arguing that America is more divided today than at, any than at any time in the past 50 years. And of course, he's pulling from, I don't think I need to really prove that point very much today, but he's talking about how, you know what, people don't really agree to disagree anymore. Like, that doesn't really happen anymore. Uh, we make threats. You don't agree with me? I'm going to threaten you. I'm probably going to go after your family. Uh, I'm going to go on social media and rip you apart. Like you're, it's not just that you're wrong about a thought. Like your entire being is totally wrong. It is what's wrong with the world, right? Like that, that's how we talk. You turn on the news and I'm reading about a 17-year-old this past week who took to the streets, decided to kill people that were rioting and that were looting that day with a rifle. The reason they were rioting and looting is because, of course, there was another shooting again, Jacob Blake, this past week. Praise God, he happens to be alive right now, not just. And, and people are riding, they're, they're upset, and they're, there's, a, there's a lot going on there. People are trying to recover from Hurricane Laura during a global pandemic and a suffering economy. 
as we're starting one of the most contentious election seasons of the world. Like, like there's a lot of anger that's going on in the world today. Some of you are feeling it at home. You're trying to educate your kids virtually when you've got a job and you've got both spouses and the entire people, like everybody's there right, right on top of each other. So you're like, what would it look like if you and I felt a sense of obligation or indebtedness to the other people, to the other people that are sitting there across the table, like because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we were able to love one another just a little bit better today than we were the day before. I mean, it's exactly what we're, it's exactly what we're talking about here. And you've got to understand, church, like when we talk about this idea of love, like we're not talking about it in the generic sense that we talk about it today. Kind of like when I say things like, hey, I love the Gators. I love the Aggies. Go Aggies, right? Gigaman. Or, or I love Nutella pizza from Cane Rosa because it's the greatest dessert in the world. Or uh, I love puppies. Or I love lamp. Or whatever the thing may be. I, I, we're talking about love in a very specific way. We're talking about something that's got very real definition. It's a 1 Corinthians chapter 13 kind of love where Paul gets into the details and he actually specifies exactly what he's talking about. But he's actually going to get into it also here in the, in, in, in the letter to the Romans. We're going to see it in chapter 12. But, but I want you to see what he says. This is a, a beautiful chapter where it's about 11 chapters, you're going to see in, in Romans, of 11 chapters of theology. And then it's like the, the, the page turns and he just starts dumping all this application on us. And he begins Romans 12 and, and he begins reminding us that you and I are just different members of the exact same body. Again, he's, he's made us into one brand new body, right? And you and I individually were, 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 were unique um, members of the exact same body. And so in that context, he builds on that, and he comes out of that scene, and he just simply says, let love be genuine, church. Abhor what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. And there's a lot more that he says in this chapter that we'll get into here in the very future. But what I find fascinating about this entire thing is that he's talking about love and everything that he says about love, it flies in the face of what was normative that day. Keep in mind, church, like they're living in an honor-shame culture that day that did not value these things that he's talking about. They're living in this culture where, um, where their entire identity, a person's entire identity was based fully and completely upon your ability to maintain a sense of honor. And so if anybody were to come and shame you or assault that honor or anything like that, it'd be well within your rights to go in to pursue vengeance and retribution uh, for the sake of your honor. Like that's the context that they're living in. In fact, a, a couple years back, I found this article that was talking about how this is still very, very prominent in certain parts in the East today. Um, but it was just talking about this. Evidently, in 2016, there were nearly 1,100 women uh, to only 88 men who were reportedly killed in Pakistan, and they were justified as what they called honor killings, right? Still going on today, 1,100 women justified murders, and they were called honor killings, right? Uh, one of the quotes in the article is from a mother named Parveen who screamed this in the article. I have killed my daughter and I've saved my honor. She'll never, ever, ever shame me again. Church, this is a mother speaking about her own daughter. I have killed her boasting. She'll never shame me again. You want to know what her offense was? Right, right. She refused an arranged marriage and she ended up marrying a childhood sweetheart, one of her best friends. But church, like, it's, it's in the middle of this world that Paul comes and he speaks and he says, don't go there. Don't go there. That's not what we're doing. He says, he says, let your love be genuine and let it be real. <laughs> don't let it be fake. Don't, don't come to church with a plastic face on or, or a plastic smiley face that doesn't mean anything. Don't come and say, hey, man, it's so good to see you. Dude, I hate that guy over there. Like we, that's not how he says, let your love be genuine and let your love be real. 
In other words, like don't feel obligated in the sense that all you feel is duty towards one another. Let it be real inside your heart. Church, like think about the humanity of the people that are around you. Like think about their lives. Think about the people that they love and the people who love them back. Think about the affection of God and what he must have felt when he created that, that, that unique human being. Think about like how he was thinking about them when he was hanging upon the cross and how it wasn't just about you that he was dying for that day, that it was about them too. Like think about the divine nature being reflected in that face. Think about what their future could be like if someone would come and give them a break today. Like think about how God loved you when you were hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds. And he's saying right here, think about that so much to the point that when you look at them, that love is not just a duty or something like that, but it's actually real inside of you. And you have real affection and real love for them. Don't, or he says, don't be fake. Let your love be genuine and let it be real. He continues a little bit more clarity when he says, abhor what is evil and cling to what is good. In other words, church, like it's not loving to overlook evil in the world. It's not loving to overlook evil or cover it up, even if it impacts someone that you love. Spouses, church, spouses, like it's not loving to pacify sin, even if it's coming from a spouse. It's not loving to overlook evil, even if it implicates your cultural heroes, your spiritual heroes, a university president, uh, a pastor, a politician you may or may not have voted for, or even a family member. Church, like evil is always evil. Sin is always sin. And good is always good, no matter how it gets applied. Students, it's good to understand, like it is not loving for your parents to support everything you want to do. Like it's just not loving for them to come and to support everything that you want to do. It's not loving them for them to accept every decision that you want to make. Why? Because like some of what you may want to do, it may actually be sin before God. And it may actually be evil. It may not be good for you. It may not be good for others. It may not be good for your long-term future or anything like that. Like it's not always loving for your parents to come and to just affirm whatever you're feeling, whatever you may want to do. At the exact same time, it's not loving for you to do the exact same thing with your friends. It's not loving for you to always bite your tongue and never speak the truth or never confront anybody and call them to repent. Like that's not actually loving. Paul's gonna remind us in 1 Corinthians 13 that love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. In other words, there is such a thing as righteousness and there is such a thing as unrighteousness contrary to our postmodern views today which says, hey, you know what? Everything's relativistic. There is no such thing as moral truth, right or wrong or anything like that. He's saying, no, 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 no. This is very, very real. There is real righteousness. There is very real unrighteousness. And it's not loving to pacify unrighteousness. It's not loving to pacify sin and evil. And at the exact same time, it's also not loving to forget about what's good in the middle of a contradiction. Church, it's always both and. Like you abhor evil and you don't forget what's good. It's grace and truth side by side always. Church, and the reality is like some of you guys are there. You're dealing with the tension of how do I love someone that I'm vehemently abhorring the evil that's going on in their life? I was talking with a mother years ago outside of this church, don't worry or anything like that, but she was dealing with a very tough situation with a prodigal, uh, with a prodigal daughter. And uh, she had a, no problem abhorring the evil decisions that her daughter was making at that time. But the problem is that in all of her abhorrence and her hatred of the sin and the evil, she was pushing away this daughter because she forgot to cling to what is good. And what he's saying, church, is it's always got to be both and. It's never either or. You don't abhor either or uh, abhor evil or cling to what's good. It's always both and. 
And, and, and church, for some of us, the flip side is true. Like you're so good at clinging to what's good, you forget to abhor what's evil. And in the middle of that, you're pacifying sin for people you're called to love. And he, what he's saying right here is like, neither of those things in and of themselves is actually love. Church, what would it look like if you could look at the other, you could feel the sense of obligation to love them as the Bible calls us, to love them both and, abhor evil and cling to what's good. He continues in verse 10 and he says, love one another with a brotherly affection. And I, I can only imagine he's meaning that in a positive, good way. I know some people don't really have much of a brotherly affection for their brothers or sisters or anything like that. I imagine that he's talking about this in a good way, but that's what he says, love one another with a brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. And what I love about this language right in this picture that he uses, he kind of makes it up kind of like a competition, outdo one another in showing honor, kind of like, I love you so much. No, 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 I love you so much. Oh, you're awesome. No, 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 you're awesome. You're awesome. You know what I'm talking about? It's kind of like this weird competition here, kind of like, no, 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 you're the greatest. No, you're the greatest. Come on. And I, I love that picture for us. He's saying, no, 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 that needs to be the error of your life, that you're so honoring to other people that it sounds annoying, right? That, that, that's what he's saying in, in Philippians 2, 3. I love this one. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility, consider one another as better than yourself. I love to illustrate it like this, but if you've ever been to a wedding where you aren't the bride, then you know what it's like to consider someone else as more important than yourself, right? You, you, you know what that's like. You walked into the room that day, and uh, maybe you noticed the band didn't start playing when you came in the, the wedding venue. Uh, people didn't stand up for you when you came in. They didn't care about what you were wearing. They weren't asking. They weren't gawking at you. They weren't, uh, there wasn't a line to come talk to you afterwards or anything like that. Why? Because in that moment, it had nothing to do with you. That day was all about the bride, and arguably about the groom too, but really it, that, that day is about the bride, right? And what Paul's saying right here is let every single day be like that for the other in your life. That's what he's saying, church, like, like treat one another like it's their wedding day. Treat your own bride like it's her wedding day. You come home from work. Can you imagine this, church? Like what if we actually applied this every single day? Like husbands, imagine the traditional scenario. You come home from work and, 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 and you see that your wife has been laboring with the kids Right, right, trying to do virtual learning and doing her own job or doing whatever, housework, whatever it may be. And you come home and it's not just about you, but you're treating her like it's, like it's about them. And you came home and you said, you know what? I'm not gonna go kick up my feet. I'm not gonna go do my own thing. I'm gonna enter in right now. I'm gonna say, hey, babe, go take a break. I'm gonna take the kids. I'm gonna go invest in them. You need me to clean the kitchen? I'll clean the kitchen. You need me to cook tonight or take us out to dinner? Like I'm, I'm, I'm in for that tonight. Like, can you imagine if we did that every single day? You treated your spouse like it was their wedding day. And vice versa, it happened too. Maybe it's not the wedding day for the groom. Maybe it's like, hey, you know, the Cowboys won the Super Bowl or something like that. But like, imagine that the next day that, that the wife, you're, you're coming, you're doing the exact same thing, treating them like it's the most greatest day in the history of the world. And it, you keep going back and forth and you keep outdoing one another and honor, not because you have to, but because that's what's become normative in your life. Church, can you just imagine what it would be like if you felt this obligation to love one another in the sense that Paul's talking about it right here. That's what love is. It's the definition of love. He continues and he says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. In other words, like don't do what you typically want to do on social media, right? That's what he's saying right there. Don't do what's natural to do on social media. Don't blow them up. Uh, you bless the people who curse you instead of cursing them back. And church, he wraps up with one more here. And I'm just going to say, I think this is probably the most important one we need to be hearing today. But he says this. He says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. 
The reason I say it may be the most relevant one for us today is because we've got to understand that there is a lot of people who are weeping today over Jacob Blake and George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Botham Jean and Philando Castile and so many other black men and women whose stories have reinforced a lifetime of evidence that suggests that their lives simply do not matter as much. And church, you've got to understand that there's, there's an entire community of people that is weeping deeply right now. And the question that Paul would have you wrestle with is, are you willing to enter into their weeping and weep with them? You've got to understand, church, we're not, I'm sitting with pastors in our, in our area, and I'm talking with people in our own church body that are telling these stories. Like, we're not talking about the media. We're not talking about the sensational things that you see out there on TV or online or anything like that. We're talking about trusted conservative evangelical pastors as if those are the only voices that matter, which they are, they're not at all. However, we're talking to conservative evangelical pastors, Tony Evans, Brian Carter, Conway Edwards, that are all saying their churches are hurting deeply right now. There's a lot of weeping going on inside of those walls. And the question that Paul would have for us here as churches is like, are you willing to enter into that weeping? And that's what he's saying, church. It's not loving to come and to try to explain it away. It's not loving to come and to minimize that pain. It is loving to come and to enter into that pain and to weep with those who weep. Church, it's exactly what Jesus shows us how to do in John chapter 11 when he learns about Lazarus' death. And you remember this famous story where, where Mary and Martha, they come running to him and Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows that Lazarus has been sick. But he meets him along the way. They come and they hear that he's on his way and they come and run to him and they're like, Jesus, Jesus, our brother Lazarus has passed away and if you would have been here, he would be alive right now. And they're just weeping in front of him and they realize that they're just weeping at his feet. And you remember, the most, you remember what it says next? It's the most powerful two words in all of scripture. It just says that Jesus looks at Martha and, and he looks at these tears and it just simply says that Jesus wept. Why in the world would Jesus weep? He knows the power that he has. He knows that he's going to come a little bit later and he's going to come and he's going to speak into Lazarus' life and he's going to come alive again. Like, why would he weep? Church, the reason he weeps is because he saw a sister weeping. He saw her tears. He saw the sadness of a crowd at that time and he didn't come and say, hey, stop your crying. Stop whining about it. Like, he's going to be fine. He came and he saw their tears, church, and he entered into their pain and he wept with those who weep. Like, church, that's what love does. It comes and it enters in. And it's not just weeping. He says right here, like, we rejoice with those who rejoice and we weep with those who weep. And so it's not just weeping, but we also celebrate when other people are celebrating. And I'll tell you, like, this is one of my favorite things from this past week, but there's a large group of people that gathered up here at the church to celebrate Adoption Day for the Reed family. Many of you guys have been tracking with us. You've been hearing some of the stories and stuff, but Adoption Day was earlier this week on Wednesday. And there's a beautiful celebration to come and all these people gathered up here and we did a surprise parade and we kind of drove by their family and we just saw their, their celebration. You can see a picture right over here, but um, they're, they're just celebrating this day as, as, as a brand new family is coming together. And you know what was beautiful about that scene is like, I know that there were people that were there in that crowd. They were coming by and they were celebrating the reeds when they themselves were not able to have the family that they'd always desired themselves. But church, like, that's what love does. It celebrates and it rejoices with people who are rejoicing and it weeps with those who weep. It abhors what is evil, no matter who that might offend, and it holds fast to what is good. It loves one another with a brotherly affection and it outdoes everyone else in the way that we show honor. Why? Because like, that's what the gospel obligates us to do. While we were still lost and dead in our sin, God fixed his love on us so much so that he sent his one and only son, Jesus 
And he lived a life we could not live. And he went to the cross and he suffered, bled, and died as a substitute for you and for me. That's what love looks like. This past week, I, there was an article in the Dallas Morning News I clipped out. And some people, some of you guys sent it to me also, but I love seeing this. But it was about Pastor Chris Simmons over at Cornerstone Baptist Church in South Dallas. I love him. I love the ministry of his church. It's absolutely fantastic. The article uh, was titled this. It said, this small church serves as clinic pantry, and laundry for Dallas neighborhoods that were hit hard by COVID. It's a beautiful article talking about the different ways that Cornerstone Baptist Church loves South Dallas so well. And I love one of the the quotes from this article, but it was just talking about Pastor Chris's perspective. But it says this, it says, Cornerstone doesn't ask if you're a church member as a condition for lending a hand. It doesn't even care if you're from a surrounding community. The church listens to what you need and it tries to help. In a neighborhood with limited resources, we try to be the clearinghouse for everything, Pastor Chris Simmons said. People knock on our door and they say, hey, I'm going through a really, really hard time. I really want to find work. Are you able to help? And we do our best to enter in and to help. I remember sitting with Pastor Chris a couple years ago before he came to preach here at Dallas Bible Church. And again, I was listening to all the different ministries that they were involved in and the ways that they were loving their community. And honestly, it's overwhelming. It's an enormous amount of stuff that they're doing. It's beautiful in every possible way. But I remember what he commented there. He just simply said, you know what, Aaron? Like, we're just loving our community the way that Jesus would have us do. And church, like, that is my hope and my prayer for us, that today, wherever you may be, that you would feel a sense of obligation to the other. Knowing that Knowing what God has done for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, not only in making peace and unity between us and the Father, but also doing it on a horizontal level and creating peace with us, that we would feel obligated to the other. And that today that you would lead with love, no matter where you may be, all for the praise and all for the glory of his name. I want to invite you to pray with me, but Father, we do love you, God. I praise you, God, and I thank you that you showed us what love is, so we don't have to wonder what it may be. God, when we were lost and dead in our sins, you fixed your love on us and you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to come and to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God, we do praise you and we do thank you, Lord Jesus, for the love that you've shown us upon the cross. God, I pray that today, every man, woman, and child that's listening, I pray that they would feel obligated because of what you've done for us, because of what you've done in bringing together warring, hostile enemy clans and making us one brand new body in Jesus Christ. Father, would you create a sense of obligation in us, a genuine love that would permeate not only to this body, but all around this community and all around the world, all for the praise and for the glory of your name. God, I pray specifically a blessing over families, that love would reign in a family today that is struggling to feel and experience love. Father, I pray specifically for a blessing of love to come between the white community and the black community. Father, I pray that you would bring in love into that situation. God, that you would break our hearts for people that are hurting and in pain right now. All the different nuances, all the different ways. Father, will we weep with those who weep and may we rejoice with people who rejoice. But God, would you come and have your way in us today, Lord Jesus, I pray, all for the praise and for the glory of your name. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.